Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. I'm pleased today to welcome my friend uh, Peter Bryant, who is uh, my guest for the second time. Peter is the co-founder and board chair of Australian-based Development Partner Institute, a mining advocacy initiative. Much of uh, DPS work is in Africa. Peter is a thought leader and a sustainability and energy I enthusiast. Peter is widely published, speaks at conferences around the world, serves on the boards of advisors and, and various emerging tech companies, including Lagarde Solutions and SaveR. Peter, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extracted Podcast, all the way from California. Right. Thank you, Sheila. And it's an absolute delight to be here. And uh, thank you for the invitation to talk about this important topic. That's lovely. I know you uh, and Jessica Long have written about the subject of uh, ESG, uh, mm. among others, and that you and, and the former CEO of uh, Anglo-American are also strong advocates of this, uh, your friend and long-time colleague, uh, Mark Kutifani. So I thought I'd pick your brain since you're so qualified. Thank you. So, how do we look at this uh, ESG thing? Is it correct to view ESG as a mere risk management tool or is it a compliance matter? How should we cast ESG issues? Yeah, it's a really interesting uh, question, Sheila. And I believe that you know we need to move beyond this kind of compliance risk management mindset that exists in some companies, not all companies, but many companies. Uh, and, and think about it more as an opportunity for strategic and competitive advantage. Um, and if you do that, that then implies that there needs to be a different kind of approach within companies as to how they think about ESG, you know, the process that they use to get to what the ESG strategy and then the tactics on the ground that need to be deployed. So I think it's a fundamental shift that needs to happen uh, versus um, just thinking about it just merely from a compliance risk management perspective. Uh, I think it's a huge opportunity for companies, really. Right. So, so let's, let's do that then. So yeah. uh, when, you, when you say that it costs uh, for a different approach, a strategic approach, I mean, what does that look like? What would a strategic approach uh, to ESGs versus a mere risk management compliance approach look like that makes them different? Which is, uh, yeah, I mean, this is not the, uh, the only way to do it, but I think this is a way to think about it because it kind of marries, um, you know, how you develop strategy and innovation together with ESG. And I think the first thing is to kind of map out what elements of, you know, the E and the S particularly and the G are important to you. And a good framing for that is I'll just take the SDGs and really call them 17 lenses and really the first thing is then to understand for a company what's important to them from those because not all 17 are equal uh, to companies because it depends what business you're in what geographies you're operating in etc uh, and then from that then if three or four or five of those ESG elements are important and then do you know what's commonly known as a materiality uh, situation, but really understand what's important to your stakeholders. And, you know, key stakeholders, employees, the shareholders, investors, uh, depending on what industries you're in, your communities become important, customers, and really understand and kind of map that uh, to the four, five, or six that are important to you. Um, and once you've done that, then I think the next important step is this is where it really gets 
you may think tricky, Sheila, is in each of those areas, then what are the things you'd legally have to do? I mean, that, that's just what you have to do. Um, and there's plenty of rules and regulations around, particularly the E. Then what are the things the market demands you to do? You're not legally obliged. And net zero goals are a classic example of that. And there's no rules demanding companies get to net zero. That's just a market demand. And then thirdly, what are the things that you can do that competitively differentiate you from other companies so that will make you more successful in the market? Because I think if you just do compliance risk management approach, then you're just like everyone else. So it's kind of a zero-sum game versus you're know, really getting out on your front foot and distinguishing yourself from your competitors uh, in the industry. Um, and this is a you know this is difficult work, and also it demands a clean sheet approach too. Kind of you know forget what you're doing currently and kind of going back and going through the process that I just described to you. Hmm, that's interesting. So basically. Uh, what you're saying is the big picture, you, you, you've got the SDGs and they say, this is what sustainable development comprises. You then Correct. take your own industry and your footprint and say, okay, I can't be all things to all people. No. no have I the capacity to respond uh, you know, meaningfully in all the SDGs? But there are these ones that are not only important to me, but I have the capacity to respond to or the capacity to build it the wherewithal to respond. And, and then strategy then shifts, uh, you know, that conversation shifts from sheer compliance to strategy because then you start to weigh the, the pros and cons, the gains and losses. Uh, and, 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 and that while compliance is still very much a part of the picture, it is hmm. using that to move away from sheer compliance uh, that separates you know, the girls from the women, the boys from the, the men. Uh, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. No, Sheila, yeah. you got it. And I, I just want to add one other thing too to this is I think this is even more important given the amount of noise about ESG that's in, in um, you know, in the marketplace in general, whether it's in the media, commentary, there's just a lot of discourse happening that I think companies react to so, and I think in the area of issue, it's really even more important to take the approach that I just described because you really got to stop listening to the noise in the market and kind of go for a strategic approach. Otherwise, you start getting whiplash in companies because they're just reacting to, you know, what's happening in the market, what people are saying, um, which may or may not be important to their business. Yeah, that's interesting because it, it, is, it is the ability to introspect in a corporate sense of that word and, and mm. determine what matters and what to your weight is material to the business of the company that enables a company to shape its own future rather than be shaped by the public discourse. And, and, and I guess, uh, you know, a great strategist understand this, but, but the importance also is that you remain relevant because you are anchored around the SDG. So let me ask you then. So, would it be too ambitious to say, uh, after a couple of decades of the SDGs, in a, an interesting sort of way, the ESGs have really now come to the party and they well allow the UN and, and uh, proponents of the SDGs mm -hmm. to achieve the goals because the SDGs have always been there, but they've struggled with just how do we manifest them? Is the ESG the answer, perhaps, uh, ultimately? Yeah, I, it could be, Sheila. So, I mean, not everybody always agrees with me that the SDGs are the common lenses, but I'm like, you know, it's 
it's the best, I guess, developed set of lenses over ESG that I've seen. So, I mean, you could come up with your own, but I think this is a broad-based set that encompasses almost every element that's required and some very important social ones too, which is an area that's really, really underthought in many industries and companies. Um, so I, I think it is a way that will bring the SDGs to life as well and kind of a more of a bottom-up approach as companies embrace them and develop them. And I have heard companies, um, more and more companies using them as their lenses, those that go through the approach that I've just described. So. Mm. So, so let us uh, give your critics uh, some credit and say that there are different lenses. When you've spoken to your, your colleagues and they've differed, what are some of the lenses that people think outside of the uh, SDGs may offer a, a universally accepted alternative? That's an interesting question. Um, I'm, not, I, I'm not sure they come up with different areas, Sheila. I think... The one thing, you know, sometimes the SDGs are very broad, some of those SDGs. So I think people have just narrowed them. So rather than coming up with something different, they've just come up with a more narrow definition of what would be encompassed under, under an SDG. So um, I, I think that's more the point versus I've come up with something that's totally different. Because I, I think when you look at the SDGs, there's nothing that's missed. There really isn't. And I think the point is really that and this was your point earlier and that I made as well, is that you can't be all things to all people. And I think too many people expect every, every company to address every SDG, and that's just not possible. So it's kind of unpacking the SDGs, what's important, and then what part inside that SDG is important to you as a business. So Absolutely. That's interesting. So, uh, of course, companies, we, we, you and I speak about company, but companies have a hierarchy. Where in the hierarchy of a company do you reckon the ESGs uh, recite in terms of accountability. Yeah, uh, wow. So this gets into where companies are in their journaling on this. So this is definitely a C-suite um, responsibility. So it's a direct report to the CEO, Sheila. Um, and it's got to be, you know, some companies split this up. You know, some companies split up the environmental aspects and the social aspects and to do different reporting people. But I think ultimately... It all has to come together at one person. So at a VP level, for example, you could have an environmental person. To, so you can break it up. But I think then, you know, some people call it the chief sustainability officer. But I think ultimately it's got to kind of roll up into one person because there's too much interconnecting tissue between each of these elements. Uh, and, and then that person becomes a partner with, you know, the chief strategy officer, et cetera. So, so there's a lot because, yeah, this affects every part of a company's business from operations to strategy. So it's requiring a higher degree of, I think, early collaboration. And I think, and this gets into, I think safety is a great uh, analog for the Sheila, you know, that we see in the oil industry and the mining industry and also the nuclear industry is that, you know, once upon a time, safety was the safety department's job. Okay. And in each of those three industries I mentioned today, it's everyone's job. So I think in terms of ESG particularly, I think we're on a journey where ESG has to become everyone's job, not just the ESG department's job. So, uh, and I remember uh, I, was, I did a fireside chat with the president of Unilever Americas, and he said when uh, Unilever embarked on its journey, one of the first things they did, which was more um, symbolic, was they disbanded the corporate sustainability group right, to kind of make the point that it's everyone's job, not the corporate's job, and then reconstitute it to be somebody that helps advise the business units 
uh, on that and, you know, and provide the appropriate frameworks and approaches versus, oh, that's that department's job. So, so I think a C-suite um, responsibility, um, obviously the board has a role in this as well, very important. And then ultimately it has to become everyone's job and that has massive implications for a whole bunch of areas within a business's kind of governance of areas. Yeah, it's, it's reminiscent of, uh, say, for instance, the uh, people management function where uh, decades ago, it was the head of HR's job. I don't manage yeah. people, I run a mine. Yeah. Uh, and a little knowing that, uh, you know, uh, the biggest asset on the mine are people. And so if you are running a mine, you're running people. Yep. And, and so, uh, you know, backing uh, the ESGs into the system and making uh, the ESG uh, an ethos rather than a function. And, and then saying in, in this big picture of ethos, uh, you know, who are the front runners? You know, yes. and, and also to your point, bringing us back to the strategy, you know, if our focus in the environment, then naturally people in that space may spend more man hours, but that doesn't mean uh, everybody else is, is uh, uninterested. But doesn't it still matter, uh, Peter, where in that, uh, if you wish, hierarchy, one draws the line in terms of what things go to the board. Uh, does the board decide what the four issues are, for instance, in the ESGs and what the aspects of it? Uh, and does the executive recommend? There still is a need, isn't there, for somebody to say, look, fellows, we, the direction of travel is eastwards. Yeah. I think, yeah, it depends where the companies are on their journey, Sheila, to be honest. So, you know, I've, I've spoken to a lot of CEOs and ESG leaders across many industries, and I kind of bucket companies, and this is important to then to answer your board question, into three uh, buckets. One is there's, a, you know, still a minority, but a growing set of companies that are around, you know, this is so important, we need to take a clean sheet approach to what, along the lines I described, and and start again and look for strategic and competitive advantage. So that's one set. The second set is, well, we're doing all this already. All we need to do is repackage, repurpose, and recommunicate what we're already doing, and then we'll be fine. So it's kind of like you know, repurpose. It's just like, well, we're not well understood, so we just need to con communicate better. And then the, there's a third set, which is still a sizable minority, which I call it this too shall pass, who see whilst you know they are committed to certain elements of it, they just think the whole ESG thing is a fad and will pass. Um, so depending where you are on that curve of maturity on ESG, I think is depends on how your board should react, right? So I think ESG is so important is, so if you're getting more mature, obviously the executive will bring the strategy to the board and road test it with the board. So the board can say, you know, are you covering the important areas, right? If the company's not doing that, then I think it's omnipotent on the board to kind of prep, you know, push the executive to say, we don't think you're adequately addressing this ESG in the context of our business and the industry that we serve. So, so that, at that point, the board can really, you know, kind of really test the executive and push the executive to really do something and bring something back to the board. Um, but then that kind of last point is then that kind of gets into two things about the board, Sheila. One, What's the level of expertise and capability that's at the board in this area? Uh, and then two, in terms of the subcommittees, the committees of the board, where does ESG reside? Is there a sustainability committee or is it embedded in the risk 
committee, the compliance, you know, where is this sit uh, in a committee structure? And, and that is an important signal as well, both to the executive and to the market as to how seriously a board actually is taking this. Absolutely. Talking mm. of uh, taking the ESGs seriously or not, mm. uh, I wonder whether you have a view on the, the own market and whether they are pricing ESGs, at least for now, because, yeah. you know, you see on one level, at least, that despite the conversation, mining and oil companies have been devalued. And even with that, the profits are surging. And it has left me wondering how effective ESGs are as drivers of value, at least in the equity markets. Do you have yeah. a view on this? I do. And, and Sheila, you've just scratched on what I consider the most wicked problem in ESG which is, is it, a, is it currently a driver of value? And, and you've got to say the way the markets are, you know, so the equity markets, is you've got to say for those companies, it, it, it's not. I don't believe it is. Um, and, and it's kind of weird. And, and then, then there, it depends. So one is there's this absence of standards, right? And, you know, this is evolving. So we can't, you know, we, and there's been a lot of media coverage on this and financial press particularly, we can't compare and contrast a basket of companies in a similar industry to know who is a good or bad performer in the ESG. You just can't. So it makes it really hard for the equity markets to kind of value companies uh, or in, you know, imp impute a value around ESG performance um, because it's all over the map. And we're seeing that with, you know, what companies are included in mutual funds that are ESG focused or, you know, funds, you know, in some ESG funds, Exxon appears, for example, and others, they don't. Um, so it's kind of like, so because of this inability to have a common set of standards, which then allow to, like, you know, financial standards to compare and contrast relative performance, it's hard to understand is the, mar the market imputing value. And you just look at the oil industry, Sheila, like, you know, Exxon and Chevron, who, if you like, are doing less investment. They have a different strategy, and that's fine uh, in terms of you know, investing in renewable energy and the you know, energy transition to, say, a Shell and BP. Their PE ratios are higher today, I believe, were before uh, than Shell and BP, right? Because their financial performance is fantastic. So, again, the market is um, really leaning back to financial performance. So, um, And I, I don't know when the time comes where the market imputes true value. I, I think it's still a few years away, to be honest. Hmm. So, so I guess uh, from that, uh, there are a lot of takeaways, list of which is that yes. while the ESG is, is and, and this phenomena is, is clearly driving the way we see investments mm -hmm. and is likely to continue for a while, there's still a lot of questions in terms of just what that means in terms of one where we place the value of, of uh, ESG strategies and compliance or risk management, depending on a, a company's focus. Mm. But it also speaks to the fact that we are still trying to find our feet in terms of uh, quite how to bed the ESGs as a, 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 a you know, the way we, we do business. Uh, yeah. But also that, you know, certain things won't change. The bottom line will always matter. Yes. Uh, and, 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 and so the question really is how, what the marriage is 
between the bottom line as ESGs as perceived not just by those who put money in projects, mm. but, uh, but those who expect a return and those who then analyze yeah. the robustness of a corporation. And so and until there is a, a confluence of views around this, which you call standards, then my sense is that this lack of uh, you know, consistency and lack of ability to, to put a price uh, yeah. on uh, you know, the ESG is going to be here. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think this is where I will uh, bring in the, uh, the concept of risk now for a moment in a positive way. So I think you know, it's even with the lack of these, you know, whether we call them standards or something where we can you know, consistently look at performance of companies, there's a belief system that has to happen. So because I believe you know, everything from regulations to standards always lag, Sheila. So and I think the chief investment officer of Calsters who I've got to know, he said something really important. He said, you know, because yeah, we're a long-term investor, we have a fiduciary responsibility to pay pensions to all the teachers in California. It's a big fund. Um, so he says he talks to CEOs, you know, around this whole ESG element, but in the context of risk to their business. So it's not using risk management, but it's saying over the long term, we're talking 20, 30 years now, if your customers and the people you depend on employ supply chain are wanting these things, then how are you addressing them? So there's a belief system that if this is important and these things are happening and over a period of time and your con ultimate consumers of your products, whether you're B2B or B2C, these things begin to matter. How are you going to address that as a business? So, so again, this is where you need to kind of, if you believe that, which I do, as consumers become more informed, is then how do you address that as a business in terms of competitive advantage? So what are the new products and services? How do you enhance your current products and services in a way that they become more valuable and more attractive to your ultimate customers? So that's the mindset. Because I think the danger is if you're in this compliance mindset, the, the discussion we actually just talked about is because we're not there yet, it becomes an excuse for companies not to act. Okay, mm. but I think if you take the strategic mindset that, and you look at to what matters to your stakeholders, then you begin to th think differently around ESG um, and how it affects your business over the long term. And I think, and that then gets to the heart of the matter, which is about shareholder value, right? Because if you don't address these issues that are becoming important, then you could be maybe you know, in the next few years, start to see a decline in your shareholder value and a decline in your revenues and profits. So, so I think this kind of thoughtful approach is really, really important to unpick what I've just kind of described. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. Because uh, of course, if, if you are looking at it as a, a compliance tool, then you're gonna wait. The initiative is with the regulators and others yes. to set the parameters. And you can just sit back and say, well, once I know what the standards are, guess what? I'm ready to go. But if Correct. it's strategic, then you're ready to go because you perceive value and you perceive that that direction is what is going to give your shareholders, your host governments, the communities, the value that you, you yourself uh, uh, perceive. So, I mean, th this, um, I don't know, this uh, lack of, uh, if you wish, market uh, valuation certainty notwithstanding we know now that uh, the securities and exchange commission in the united states mm. uh, has added the esgs uh to its regulatory requirements and 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 not in a light touch way they i say very onerous because as you know i say when a company listed on the nasdaq 
and they, they haven't pulled punches. So what should what should we make of the, of the, the Americans uh, going through the gateway this way? Yeah, I, yeah. I have I, to be honest. Yeah, I haven't read it in detail. I've read summaries of the you know what they're thinking about, and you know I, again because the, the nature of this problem is so wicked. I think we're kind of emerging into dangerous territory here if the regulators become too prescriptive. Because a lot of this is so dependent upon industry and markets, um, and a lot of it is not as empirical as we think. You know, so you get into—I mean, just take uh, zero emissions. So you know, that's something that is quantifiable. You know, the compliant. There's no rule to say you have to be net zero. So the compliance issue is how you report and provide transparency in a consistent way uh, to the market, whether it's scope one, two, three, and some people are talking scope four even. So you know, that's hard enough. But then you get into the S part. A lot of that's not clear. It's not numerically driven. It's soft. And I remember the CEO of SASB, which is now being, is now a foundation. She said that is a you know, wickedly difficult problem is to come up with what is the metrics and reporting for S because it's not uh, quantifiable. So, so I think for the SEC to kind of wade in, I, I'm worried that they become so prescriptive it becomes restrictive and it doesn't provide sufficient flexibility to recognize industries and geographies. Um, and it just, and you know, what all that does Shira, at the end of the day is drives companies to become private, right? Because the, the regulatory costs and burdens and restrictions just become too great and actually don't add value to anything. And the final point is, you know, and the US has to get used to this. There are a lot of things the US require are actually not allowed to happen in other countries. So you've got US companies that operate around the world in Europe, you know, diversity and inclusion is one of those. There's in many countries, you know, they're not allowed, it's illegal to kind of report the way the US wants them to report around, you know, different classifications of people. Like you're not allowed to classify people in a lot of countries like the US wants. So it's it's very, very complex. So um, I, I don't know where the end game is. And, you know, they've got to go through a consultation process, I hope, uh, in terms of figuring this out. So. Yeah, the challenge, of course, is that when Uncle Sam uh, catches a cold, everybody else does around the world. And Correct, people yes. feel inherently obliged uh, to indulge uh, Wall Street in some form or other. This is the challenge. But, but another, of course, is that a lot of the mega companies that operate outside uh, the United States are have uh, the U.S. as their primary listing. And so Correct. they have to operate in different jurisdictions with uh, a, a view in the mirror. So, so for those companies, as you said, this is problematic and some of them uh, can't just easily go private, especially the large ones. But, but, uh, but I, 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 I think where you, uh, I think the point you're making is interesting is the social space. Yes. And for me, it's not as, uh, you know, Cisco, uh, you know, leader spoke of it. It's not that it can't be measured, I don't agree. I think it is that it cannot be inscripted in the, so, in the same way because it, the social by definition is very unique to any culture. It's very yes. unique to any economy. Therefore, you know, trying to have the same standards for you know, developed markets versus emerging markets, different religious uh, you know, destinations, I imagine would be a tall order. And I think it is here that prescribing social standards is near impossible because you're trying to make uniform that which is not uniform, which is to say 192 countries with whatever number of cultures exist. I think that is why, in my view at least, 
the S, like the E, largely, of the ESGs, must be you know, conceptualized globally, but really the standards must be designed and applied locally. Uh, because otherwise, it's just generic, but in, and in the absence of specificity, as you and I know, mm. really, you've done nothing. You know, you've done something because it's concrete, it's specific, it's unique, it's discernible, yeah. it's quantifiable, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But, but uh, so I, I do agree with you, nevertheless, that we, we do have uh, a long way uh, to go. And, and that, in a way, validates your question of the importance of some kind of agreement on some standards. Uh, because in the absence of that, we are going to continue to have these debates. Here yeah. is my uh, sort of uh, final question to you. I mean, if you think of uh, the orderous nature of ESGs and the, at least the discourse and the expectations and now the drive for compliance, attached value, et cetera, does the ESGs phenomena make doing business in the extractives more difficult? Or does it in fact offer some kind of potential yardstick through which mining and oil and gas corporations can at last uh, collectively demonstrate their value proposition to stakeholders? Yeah, it's a great question, Sheila. Um... I think, yeah, I mean, I think ESG does provide an opportunity because both industries have been moving, but I think it's an important lens for the market and other stakeholders to look at those industries. Because I think that, you know, if you look at the extract, yeah, the mining industry, for example, you know, the whole decarbonization electrification world is absolutely wholly dependent on the mining supply chain. But the mining supply chain has to be, the minerals have to be responsibly sourced. So there's huge E and S implications within that so i think it's a framework that allows the other stakeholders and the markets and the downstream companies to look at mining in a way much more systematically and same time it allows the mining companies to kind of organize how they're doing things in a way that everybody else understands because it's not a well understood industry and i think the same is probably for the oil industry as well um, so in terms of you know what they're doing to improve their environmental performance, whether it's emissions, water, air quality, social performance with communities, and acting as a you know, catalyst for prosperity beyond you know the resource itself, um, I, I think it's tremendously important. And again, it's an opportunity. You know, you get companies like Anglo American and Mining that I think are kind of real leaders. Got a lot of work still to do in terms of how they. Uh, integrating ESG into their strategy and then communicating it in a way that makes sense uh, to the markets. And <clears throat> I will give you a couple of examples, I think, of companies that are kind of positioning themselves well, that are kind of ones in industrial. So, I, you know, Dow started this journey before ESG was even important. And they, the way they think about it is what's their, you know, how do they impact their footprint? You know, what it is they do? Then they look at their handprint. So how do their products and services affect the greater environment outside their consumer base? And then finally, Blueprint, which is the strategy around the planet. And how do they get involved in you know, their products and services and how it impacts the planet? And you know, that's kind of plastic. So, and that demands broader industry and you know, public-private partnerships. So it's kind of a way of, that, that's their way of you know, strategically um, 
doing that. You know, Anglo-American has got Future Smart, where sustainability and social performance are underpinnings to their innovation strategy, which is out there, Future Smart. And finally, Starbucks have got a good one, which I like as well, which is we need to think about being profit positive, people positive, and planet positive, which is kind of their articulation of footprint, handprint, blueprint. So I think companies need to come up with a framing that A, is understandable inside their company so everybody can get around it and then B, that the market and stakeholders like you and I and everybody else can easily understand. Um, so I, th I think that's really, really important. And then finally, I, this is really important, I know slightly off your question is, if you don't align compensation, Sheila, to all of this, none of this is going to happen. So, and I, I think compensation and how executives are rewarded, and you know, if then they don't have a part of their um, incentive compensation aligned to these kind of things, then it's not going to happen inside companies. Then it does become lip service only. Mm. So, yeah. so yeah, no, I, I think you're right. The, the, the notion that if it's not measured, it's not done, if it's not rewarded and acknowledged, no. then it's not important. Uh, it, it remains true. But you, the, I'm intrigued by the examples you gave. And so as a follow-up to my final question, yeah. I mean, all the names you've, you've stated are mega companies, are big brands. Yes. Uh, I mean, do you, in your experience, I mean, where do the juniors in mining fit into these? Are they going to just kind of like slip unnoticed? Uh, because my assumption is that for us to be effective with the ESGs, especially given the SDG lens, it has to be a critical mass. Uh, it seems to me increasingly we, we are looking to the big companies. Do we assume that uh, if they comply, the others will simply follow? Yeah, I, uh, that's a great example, Sheila, of I think the my, for the mining industry, and this goes to, to an extent the oil and gas industry, is that I think it's uh, on, extremely important for the large companies in the sector to help, the because the juniors... The big companies rely on the juniors for the future resource, right? And so they have a vested interest that at an ESG level, you know, that the juniors, when they're doing exploration and, and even early production, that they have good ESG performance because then they become good acquisition targets, right, for the big companies. You can't acquire somebody if they've got that really poor performance. It's just going to be its value destruction. So I think it's calling for a new level of collaboration um, between you know, the, the large end and the mid-sized companies in the sector to kind of enable and provide the tools and processes that aren't about huge investment, that enable juniors to, you know, perform in these areas in a way that is accretive to their value and also meets the needs of the companies that will potentially acquire them. So, so I think there's an industry level response that has to happen. Um, and I've, you know, for example, I've always pushed ICMM that you know, is the collection of the big companies to do more in terms of the toolkits and the things it does to provide you know, kinds of services, if you like, or capability to the junior companies. Because um, everybody gains by doing this. And I, don't, I just don't think you can leave it just to the juniors and hope they do that. So, so I, th I think there's a challenge for the industry at large, both uh, mining and to a lesser degree oil and gas, because they don't rely as much on juniors uh, for that. That's wonderful. Well, uh, you didn't disappoint, Peter. Thank you very much for your time. And I appreciate once again, you're joining the Sheila Palmer Extractive Podcast. Sheila, thank you very much. I've enjoyed the discussion. And as always, thank you for the opportunity. It was a real delight.